Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And it's time for some Unearthed in July. Uh, <laughs> Unearthed is, is a perpetually growing beast. It is. If you are new to the show, this used to be once a year and then it became twice a year. And it's when we talk about things that have been literally or figuratively unearthed over the past whatever block of time period. Uh, it has been for a bit, uh, first half of the year, second half of the year. But this July... There were so many cool things to talk about, way more cool things than even could fit into a two-part episode. So I put up this poll on our Facebook and Twitter to ask folks how they would feel about maybe having unearthed four times a year. Or I I suppose it could also be three, I don't know. Regardless, in (laughs) response to more unearthed, it was an overwhelming yes. Like approximately 90% were in favor of four times a year unearthed. So it will either be quarterly Uh or thrice yearly. Maybe we could coincide it with the number of times I get my teeth cleaned every year. (laughs) We can just use that as the calendar basis. Well, and I I didn't think about the possibility of doing sort of trimester uh, until literally talking through this just now (laughs) in my head. So everyone's hearing my internal reasoning. Uh, With that in mind, These Unearthed episodes are coming out at the end of July, but they're really covering January through the end of May because I was just so full up on it at that point. Uh, So June will roll into next time. Sometime in the vicinity of late September or early October, we'll have another round. Um, And then in December or the start of January, we'll have the last part of the year, and then we'll sort of see how all that goes in regards to next year's scheduling. They may not all be two-parters. It'll just depend on whether this trend of stuff continues, because there was just so much interesting stuff to talk about. So today, we have a whole lot of updates and connections to previous episodes of the podcast, and then we'll move on to some things about Neanderthals and early humans and the unearthed books, letters, and works of art. And then next time, we will have some of the longtime listener favorites like the edibles and potables, and of course, the shipwrecks. Who doesn't love a good shipwreck? But first, we are going to talk about one of my favorite things. Uh-huh. The Voynich Manuscript. Uh, we talked about this one on the show in 2014, and then we updated that in 2017, and it has appeared on Unearthed previously. And in May of this year, a flurry of headlines reported that a researcher from the University of Bristol had cracked the code on the Voynich Manuscript. The researcher in question, Dr. Gerard Cheshire, published his paper in the journal Romance Studies under the title The Language and Writing System of MS-408, Voynich Explained. And in the paper, he said this work had taken him about two weeks while he was working on his thesis. That was kind of the first red flag. Here, in a nutshell from the paper, is what he says it was all about. Quote, The manuscript uses a language that arose from a blend of spoken Latin or vulgar Latin and other languages across the Mediterranean during the early medieval period, following the collapse of the Roman Empire and subsequently evolved into the many Romance languages, including Italian. For that reason, it is known as proto-romance, prototype romance. It had long been hypothesized as the logical link between spoken Latin and the Romance languages, but no documented evidence had ever been found before. 
That's the end of the quote. He also concluded that this work was a resource that was produced by Dominican nuns for the use of Maria of Castile. In his words from press releases surrounding the discovery, quote, I experienced a series of eureka moments, followed by a sense of disbelief and excitement when I realized the magnitude of the achievement, both in terms of its linguistic importance and the revelation about the origin and content of the manuscript. What it reveals is even more amazing than the myths and fantasies it has generated. It is no exaggeration to say this work represents one of the most important developments to date in romance linguistics. Almost immediately, though, linguists and medievalists got to work debunking this entire thing, including various people writing essays and tweets and whatnot about how that's not how romance languages developed and proto-romance, as described in the paper, is not a thing. Various scholars also reported that they had received unsolicited copies of a draft of this paper going back to 2017, which is a no-no if you were planning to try to submit something to peer-reviewed journals. Within two days of that first announcement, the University of Bristol had withdrawn its own press release about the paper and distanced itself from Cheshire, saying that this was all his own work and not affiliated with the university or its resources. In a statement, the university also said that it was going to, quote, seek further validation and allow further discussions both internally and with the journal. (laughs) So to recap... Every time you see a headline that says someone has decoded the Voynich manuscript, just mentally add in the words, claims to have in there. (laughs) Because it happens with some degree of frequency. Uh Uh-huh. We love the Voynich manuscript. I honestly don't know at this point if I want anyone to crack it because I kind of like that it's this weird, nutty thing. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, most of the time... It, it follows this pattern of like, I have figured it out. And other people go, hold on a minute, chief. <laughs> well, especially when somebody's like, I have figured it out. And it took me two weeks. And people I just are like, casually did it on the side. <laughs> so also from the land of claims to have, the latest news on Amelia Earhart, very surprisingly to me, did not come from the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery which is usually who is publicizing various alleged Earhart findings. In 2018, members of a team known as Project Blue Angel traveled to Buka in Papua New Guinea to study a possible crash site. They conducted a lot of underwater measurements of what may be her crashed airplane, and they also found a flat piece of glass that might be a lens from a plane. In January of this year, these findings made news because they launched a GoFundMe to pay for another expedition to do further study. As is pretty much always the case, this story floated around with a lot of they-found-it-type headlines, similar to the Voynich manuscript, uh, but this is still unconfirmed, and one of many hypotheses about exactly what happened to Earhart. Our episode on her disappearance came out in 2009, and that was updated in 2012, and Amelia has also made lots of unearthed appearances. Yeah, it's almost a an every-time thing, or at least it's an, like it now for the Amelia Earhart segment. Uh, Previous hosts of this podcast did episodes on the Bronte family back in 2012, and this year, an unidentified woman, at least I have not figured out who exactly she was, showed up to Antiques Roadshow in North Wales with a ring containing a lock of Charlotte Bronte's hair, 
everybody involved with looking at it was like, I have no reason to doubt that this is what it is. It's this tiny lock of braided hair that fits down into the interior of the ring, and the outer layer of the ring kind of opens up like a lid on a hinge. The inscription on the inside of the ring has Charlotte Bronte's name and the year of her death, and that was 1855. Anne Densdale, who's the principal curator of the Bronte Society and Bronte Parsonage Museum, implied that that museum might be willing to purchase that ring if they had sufficient funds. I think the Antiques Roadshow people were like, this is worth maybe 5,000 pounds, but since it's Charlotte Bronte's, it's worth 22,000 pounds. Right. Maybe not pounds, maybe euros, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember what the dollar measurement they were using was. Right. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, a ram-headed sphinx was unearthed in Egypt, dating back to King Tut's grandfather, Amenhotep III. It is unfinished, and it was found in a carving workshop near Aswan. And the reasons for its lack of completion are not clear. It is possible that it was just basically a canceled order with work on it stopped when Amenhotep died. Uh, Amenhotep III has come up on previous episodes on uh, King Tut and Hatshepsut. Uh, that one, that last one was really recently. To move on, in May, Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Paul Howard announced that he was reopening the case into the 1913 murder of Mary Fagan, which past hosts of the show covered in 2011. Leo Frank was her supervisor at the National Pencil Company, and he was convicted of the crime. He was then lynched after his sentence was commuted in 1915. And in the years since then, the general consensus has been that the culprit was really a man named Jim Conley, who was a janitor and was the prosecution's key witness. There have been several attempts to clear Frank's name in the decades since all this happened. This re-examination is thanks to a newly established Conviction Integrity Unit, which will look at previous cases with questionable outcomes and make recommendations to the DA about which may need to be evaluated. District attorneys around the U.S. have been creating these units to try to exonerate people who were wrongly convicted and to try to prevent similarly wrongful convictions in the future. A ruling on this particular case is expected sometime next year. In another reopened case, authorities in Russia have reopened the case into the Dyatlov Pass incident, which we talked about on the podcast in October of 2014. This was a group of students from Ural Polytechnic Institute who died in 1959 under very strange circumstances. Their tent was sliced open, several of them had head wounds, and many of their bodies were found in their underwear and without any shoes on. An investigation was opened at the time, but it closed after about three months with the disaster attributed to spontaneous power of nature. Uh, according to Alexander Kurinoy of the Prosecutor's General Office, the newly reopened investigation is not totally open-ended. It will try to determine whether their deaths were the result of an avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. So this case was reopened in February, and an expedition was planned to the site for shortly thereafter. We haven't gotten updates into any new developments since the announcement came yet. In one of 2014's unearthed episodes, we talked about a 19th century Winchester rifle that had been found just leaning on a juniper tree in Great Basin National Park, where it had been for who knows how long. Authorities ultimately determined it had been made in February 1882. Now they have put it through a conservation process and given it a new permanent home in the Park Visitor Center. The juniper tree that it had been leaning on was later destroyed, unfortunately, in a wildfire. 
And in our last update before we take a quick break, there is still a lot of discussion happening about the proposed exhumation and reburial of Francisco Franco, who we talked about last December. Initially, this exhumation was scheduled for June 10th of this year, but in January, the prior at the Valley of the Fallen, where he's buried, said that he would not allow that to happen. This is a developing story, and it would be weird to just leave it at that. So here are the latest updates up through the day we're recording this episode. On June 4th, Spain's Supreme Tribunal suspended the exhumation plan, saying that the Franco family had the right to appeal the decision. Then in July, Renzo Frattini, who was the Vatican's ambassador to Spain, criticized the exhumation plan, saying, quote, Honestly, there are so many problems in this world and in Spain. Why resuscitate him? I am saying they have resuscitated Franco. Leaving him in peace would be better. God will judge him. Remembering something that has provoked a civil war does not help to live better. This prompted the Spanish government to formally complain to the Vatican. That's actually the only exhumation we've got for these mid-year unearthed episodes. Uh, Apart from possible exhumations around the Hartford Circus Fire, which we recently talked about on a Saturday Classic, my exhumation Google alert wasn't particularly productive (laughs) January (laughs) through May. Uh, So maybe there will be more of that later in the year. Ah, We've just talked about a lot of things, though. So we're going to take a quick sponsor break before we have even more updates. Not too long ago, we replayed a past episode on Charles Dickens as a Saturday classic. That previous episode referenced him supporting two households, and previous hosts Sarah and Dublina hinted that they would talk more about that in a future podcast. Later on, listeners asked us whatever happened to that future podcast because it did not apparently exist. It turned out that it had never been made just because of a basic lack of information, but we were able to find a few tidbits about Dickens having a long-term affair with another woman while separated from his wife but not divorced from her and basically supporting both of those households. We thought that was probably what Sarah and Dublina were referring to. Well... University of York professor John Bowen has combed through a set of 98 documents in the Harvard Theater Collection. It doesn't appear that anyone had carefully gone through or analyzed these letters before Bowen got to them, and he wrote about what he found in February. These were letters from Edward Dutton Cook, who was a neighbor of Charles's estranged wife, Catherine. Edward and his wife became friends with her, and she shared various details about her marriage to Charles Dickens with Edward toward the end of her life. Edward did not keep this information, which was pretty personal, private. He put all kinds of details about it in letters to his friend William Moy Thomas. These details included the fact that Dickens apparently tried to have his wife committed to an asylum so that he could carry on this relationship with another woman. In Bowen's words, quote, this is a stronger and more damning account of Dickens's behavior than any other. Their drama lives on. Uh... An expedition to Antarctica to try to find the remains of Shackleton's ship, Endurance, set off early this year. But on February 14th, the team announced that they had abandoned the search and they were headed back home to avoid the risk of being trapped by ice. The Endurance itself had been crushed by ice in 1915. Uh, Our episode on Shackleton's race to the South Pole is from way back in 2010. Yeah, Holly and I, not part of that episode, but it does exist. 
Previous hosts also did a podcast on Cahokia back in 2011, and in a paper published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this February, researchers documented the connection between human feces from the site and the population of Cahokia and environmental changes that were going on like droughts and floods. To do this, they studied sediment layers from Horseshoe Lake, which is adjacent to Cahokia. As people defecated in Cahokia, runoff would have carried their feces to the lake, where they became part of the lake bed's layers of sediment. And they extracted cores of this sediment to study those layers. What they found was that the human waste and the products associated with them and these layers corresponded to known increases and decreases in Cahokia's population and its eventual abandonment around 1400. And they also found connections between all these population changes and environmental factors like droughts and floods. There's also a new book out on Cahokia this year called Feeding Cahokia, Early Agriculture in the North American Homeland, and that's written by Gail Fritz. And in a press release about the book, she was quoted as saying, It's clear that the vast majority of Cahokia's farmers were women, and it's likely that their critical knowledge of domesticated crops and wild food plants would have earned them positions of power and respect at every level of society. Yeah, that's not the only new book about Cahokia this year, but that one particularly caught my attention because it really is sort of rethinking what has typically been understood about, like, the stratification of society in in Cahokia and, and who was at what level. A professor in University College Cork has examined a 16th century administrative manual that's been passed down through a local family. And it turns out that part of the binding of this book is made from a 15th century Irish translation of the Canon of Medicine by Ibn Sina, who is more commonly known among English speakers as Avicenna. It was not at all unusual for bookbinders to reuse parts of other books in their bindings because vellum and other bookmaking materials were very expensive. So bookbinders reclaimed things from old books whenever they could. But this particular translation of the canon of medicine is previously unrecorded in Irish medical history. Our episode from Avicenna is from back in 2014. Yes, I don't know that we've ever talked about it on the show, but one of my jobs that I used to have was uh, working in a college library, repairing the book collection as needed so it could stay in circulation. And I often encountered things that were made of other books. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because they had some pieces of the collection that were very old, so we were trying to protect those and keep the record of the history, but also, again, keep it part of a circulating collection. So just verifying that that is 100% accurate. Yeah, when I was when we were in San Francisco, I went to the Bookbinders Museum and had this uh, guided tour of the Bookbinders Museum, and that was one of the things they talked about was how many things were reclaimed. But simultaneously, like if you were shaving too much off of the edges of your paper to try to reclaim that and make new paper, you could get in big trouble <laughs> because that was a quality issue. Right, it was a guild. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I legitimately, this sounds like something I would be saying facetiously. Legitimately, like the history of bookbinding is fascinating, even though there it aren't super is. there aren't a lot of like big moments in it. There are just a lot of different practices that shifted over the years that have their own unique flavor and impact on like the way the industry worked going forward. Uh, Maybe one day we'll do an episode on that. It might be tricky. (laughs) Uh, Previous hosts of the podcast did an episode on Rapa Nui, also called Easter Island, way back in 2008, and then that was updated in 2012. 
Recent research there suggests that the island's famous statues may have been intentionally placed near sources of fresh water. And this gives a possible reason for why the island's statues and shrines are in their particular locations. This research was focused on the western portion of the island, and anthropologist Carl Lippo reported that this proximity to the water wasn't always obvious because fresh water would emerge along the coast when the tide went out. It was only there sometimes, and it was observing this pattern that they spotted the connection between when water would emerge and where these statues and shrines were. The team is hoping to expand their research to include the rest of the island as well. In other Easter Island news, Norway announced a plan to return thousands of artifacts, including the bones of Rapa Nui people. Uh, Those had been removed from the island in the 1950s by Thor Heyerdahl. And Heyerdahl is most known for the expedition aboard Kontiki, which was meant to demonstrate that people from South America could have settled the Polynesian islands. I think I have that that expedition on my... Uh, ideal list for some point in the future, but it's also one of those that every time I get to it, I kind of go, I feel like we have did it already, but I don't think we did. I have done a similar thing with it. I have it scribbled in a notebook, and every time I look at it, I'm like, is this to tell me to go back and look at what we did, and then I look for it, and I can't <laughs> find it, and... <laughs> this is one of the things that comes along with uh, joining a show after it's been through other hosts in a long archive, uh, sometimes with things named in a way that aren't immediately obvious. Well, and to be frank, I mean, we have been doing it long enough that there are episodes that we worked on. I think it's come up before where I've been like, I don't remember this at all. And you're like, you did the research on that one? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's easy to, I mean, you can't keep it all in your head, unfortunately. I can't anyway. I certainly cannot. Uh, Back to some unearthings. This is another previous unearthed follow-up. In Unearthed in July 2018, we talked about the discovery in Alabama of a ship that was believed to be the Clotilda. The Clotilda was the last known ship to carry enslaved Africans to the United States, which happened more than 50 years after the U.S. had outlawed the import of enslaved people from Africa. The Clotilda was burned and sunk in July of 1860 after bringing 100 enslaved Africans to the United States because its owners wanted to destroy the evidence of their crimes. It turned out pretty quickly that the ship in question was not the right size to be the Clotilda. That was something that we talked about on last year's Unearthed in July as well. But the potential discovery sparked a lot of interest in trying to find the ship. In May, marine archaeologists announced that this time they did find the Clotilda. It was located in Alabama's Mobile River. In that same uh, episode of Unearthed, in the same passage, we also talked about the publication of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, which was based on her 1927 interview with a man known as Kujo Lewis. He was believed to be the last living survivor of the Clotilda, but that designation shifted this year as well. In March, Hannah Durkin of Newcastle University published a paper in the journal Slavery and Abolition, in which she notes that a woman named Radoshi actually lived until 1937. Kujo Lewis died in 1935. That's actually somebody that Zora Neale Hurston also knew about and, and wrote about, but it wasn't clear the timeline of their deaths until now. We talked about bog butter in our Butter versus Margarine episode in 2016. Please don't eat bog butter. Uh, And it's also come up on previous editions of Unearthed. Now, researchers at the University of Bristol and University College Dublin have dated 32 bog butters from the collection of the National Museum of Ireland. They wanted to find out if this butter was really what we think of as butter, made from milk fat, or if it was really uh, fat that had come from animal carcasses. And turns out it was really dairy butter, 
This research also suggests that the practice of putting butter in the bogs goes back about 1,500 years earlier than previously thought. The oldest sample that they were looking at was from 1700 BCE. It's still not 100% clear whether people were putting the butter in the bog to try to preserve it or if it was some kind of offering. It is also totally possible that at some points in history, it was about food preservation and in other points in history, it was a more symbolic thing. They do think that at any given time, it was for one purpose and not both. Still, do not eat the bog butter. No. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We're going to talk next time about people tasting some things that had been unearthed. Uh, So just want to reiterate that. In 2016, we did an episode on the Crescent Hotel and Norman Baker, and this year, excavation work at the hotel unearthed more than 400 glass bottles and other glass vessels that date back to when the property was Baker Hospital and Health Resort. These bottles appear to have been used to store tumors and other specimens that had been removed from patients preserved in alcohol. Mike Evans, station assistant archaeologist, noted that the bottles that they found looked identical to ones shown in advertisements for the hospital-slash-resort. More than 20 bottles found still contain what looks like tissue, although it is not clear whether they are real human specimens or if they're some kind of prop. Yeah, it could have been either. Uh, Subsequent owners of the property, after it was this hospital-slash-resort, had been told that all those old specimens had been taken to the dump. They interpreted that as meaning some kind of dump facility elsewhere, rather than just being behind the building. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many uh, uh, sort of skin-crawly questions. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But there it is. Uh, We also have a few one-sentence updates of a collection of random episodes. So here we go. Poems by Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, along with notebooks and photos, were auctioned off by Heritage Auctions in Dallas on May 4th. The photo of Harriet Tubman as a young woman, which we have talked about previously, went on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, Producer Casey and I got to see that earlier this year. Uh, Sarah Burningham, executive producer of the podcast Making Gay History, unearthed previously unaired audio of past podcast subject Bayard Rustin, which became part of the podcast's fourth season. And the last survivor of the Doolittle Raid, Richard Cole, died on April 9th at the age of 103. Uh, After all of that, because that also was a lot, we are going to take a quick break and then move on to some non-episode update unearthed. Okay, now we have a collection of things that are all related to Neanderthals and early humans. And first off, archaeologists in Northeast Jordan have found evidence that Neolithic humans might have been hunting with dogs. They came to this conclusion by studying the dog's presence at an archaeological site known as Shubekwa 6, and that dates back to about 11,000 years ago. The dogs seem to have been kept in an area mostly around the edges of the settlement, but also were just allowed to roam around through everything. 
The inhabitants of Shubekwa 6 used hairs for food and used their bones to make beads. And there's an uptick in how many hairs were present at the site, which coincides with when the dogs got there. So the team's conclusion is that either people were using dogs to help them hunt hares, or perhaps the people and dogs were hunting hares together, with the people using the dogs' hunting patterns to help their own hunt. In other news, modern-day javelin throwers have helped a team of researchers look into whether Neanderthals had the ability to throw spears to hunt large animals from a distance. The team from University College London made replica spears using hand tools that were modeled after hand tools used at the time. The models for the spears were a set of 10 well-preserved throwing spears that had been excavated in the 1990s. Six javelin athletes took their turns with these throwing spears and were able to hit a target from up to 20 meters away, which was twice as far as the researchers thought they could be thrown. And this all adds to the growing body of evidence that Neanderthals were probably a lot smarter and more adept than they have generally been given credit for. Yeah, we have uh, just had a series of Neanderthal-related things over the years, <laughs> which all kind of contradict the perception that that maybe they were stereotypical cavemen. Right. Now when someone uses that word as an attempted slur or insult, someone can come back with, like, yes, my javelin skills are on point. <laughs> uh, on that same note, according to research that was published in Science Advances, both Neanderthals and early humans were probably pretty good at hunting small, fast-moving game. They came to this conclusion by studying animal bones in what is now southeastern France. It was already pretty well established that these populations hunted larger, often slower-moving animals like deer, bison, and horse. But it also looks like they were able to hunt rabbits, which might have helped them survive when larger game was more scarce. This kind of connects back over to the dogs and hares being... Uh, or the dogs helping with the hare hunting, which is more about early humans than about Neanderthals. So, moving on to the art, books, and letters. In January, the New Yorker reported on a lost story by Sylvia Plath, which Plath wrote in 1952 while attending Smith College. However, the Indiana University Lilly Library had a different take on this report In a short Twitter thread, they explained that this story was in their collections and listed in the finding aid. This uh, thread ended with, quote, in parentheses, whispers. You know, when materials are in libraries and archives, they are actually the opposite of lost. Also in the, it was there in the library, but in this case, it actually was kind of lost uh, territory. Michael Richardson of the University of Bristol Special Collections Library found a set of 13th century old French parchments tucked into some 16th century books. These texts include lots of names from Arthurian legends, and they're believed to be part of the Vulgate cycle or Lancelot Grail cycle, which was one of Sir Thomas Mallory's likely sources for Le Mort d'Arthur. So yeah, they knew about these 16th century books, but were surprised at the 13th century inclusion. And the books that the fragments were found in have their own history as well. They are a four-volume set of works by French poet and reformer Jean Gerson. The pages were printed in Strasbourg sometime between 1494 and 1502, and then they were bound in England sometime in the 16th century. Those 13th century fragments were bound in along with them. 
In one of the findings that a lot of folks told us about, uh, researchers studied the remains of an unknown woman buried in Germany about 1,000 years ago and found flecks of lapis lazuli pigment in her teeth. Logical conclusion, she was an artist who worked in manuscript illuminations and used her mouth to make the tip of her brush have a fine point. Another logical conclusion, she must have been very good at her work because lapis lazuli pigment, known as aquamarine, was extremely expensive and really hard to get. So the people that were illuminating those manuscripts were not all monks, as has often been popularly imagined. Uh, In other news, Leonardo da Vinci's thumbprint has been found on a drawing called The Cardiovascular System and Principal Organs of a Woman, which was drawn in 1509. That work is in Britain's royal collection, and the ink from the thumbprint matches the ink from the drawing, so they think he just picked up the page with inky hands. Alan Donathorne, who was a former paper conservator at the collection, called it the collection's, quote, most convincing candidate for an authentic Leonardo fingerprint. Another gear switch, uh, the practice of writing in Japan may have developed between 300 and 400 years earlier than previously thought. This is based on the discovery of ink stones, some of them unfinished, that date back to the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE. Previously, writing was believed to have been brought to Japan from China in roughly the 3rd century CE. These ink stones were probably also introduced from China. It's believed that they were first developed in China around 300 BCE before being carried to Japan. And then the earliest Japanese-made ink stones would have probably been copied from these Chinese stones before Japanese craftspeople developed their own designs and methods. In May, the conservation charity English Heritage announced that a painting long believed to be a fake based on Botticelli's Madonna of the Pomegranate was actually a real Botticelli. It was thought to be a fake because of variations in the painting itself and in the yellow pigments used to paint it. But after x-ray testing, infrared studies, and a pigment analysis, researchers have concluded that the painting really was created in Botticelli's workshop in Florence, although it was not necessarily exclusively his work. Yeah, it was totally normal for a painter to create multiple copies of the same thing, especially if it was a commission. Yeah, But everybody thought this one was fake for a long time. We have a random thing to just close out part one of Unearthed Today, and that's that archaeologists working ahead of a new high-speed rail line have unearthed the burial site of Matthew Flinders, who was the first European to circumnavigate the continent of Australia. He died in 1814, and this line that he was unearthed uh, to make way for is going to run from London to Birmingham. The construction has involved just a massive archaeological project with 60 different dig sites along the length of the route. Flinders was known to be buried at St. James's Cemetery behind Euston Station, but the cemetery also contained 40,000 bodies, and only some of the graves were being excavated. So authorities weren't all that optimistic that they were going to find his gravesite. It turned out that Flinders' coffin was marked with a lead plate that was still legible. Yeah, I found it pretty quickly, it turned out. And as a side note, there is always a lot of train line and other uh, construction-related unearthing going on. And so far this year, we've also read reports of a 4th century public fountain being unearthed during rail construction in the uh, Thessaloniki metro, and a Roman cemetery unearthed during work for a tram extension route in Strasbourg. And we'll have more next time. More things unearthed. Whole other categories. Have you unearthed some mail for us? I have unearthed some mail. It's from Shannon. Shannon has written about Marie Lawrence, 
And Shannon says, I listened to your podcast in the car on my daily commute. And when Tracy described her reaction to seeing the Marie Laurence paintings at the Musée de l'Orangerie, I knew exactly what she was talking about because I had the exact same experience when I was in Paris in January. I knew it had to be the same painter. When I got home, I pulled up my photos. I've attached my favorite Laurence from the Orangery Portrait de Madame Paul Guillaume, although it's not nearly as good as the professional ones. And sure enough, it was the same painter. I take photos of items I'm drawn to in museums so I can go back and learn more about them later, but I hadn't gotten back to this one yet. I was fascinated to hear about Marie Laurence and her life. I was especially interested to hear that she was part of the early Cubist movement. I generally don't enjoy Cubism, mostly because Picasso was a misogynist, and the gusto he shows in breaking women up into pieces always makes me so mad. Anyway, I found her work really drew me in, and I stayed there a long time looking at her paintings, the attached in particular. Thank you so much for reminding me about these paintings and giving me some insight into the artist. As always, love how sassy you ladies are, Shannon. Thank you so much, Shannon. I just wanted to read this because I always love when I find a kindred spirit <laughs> in our listener mail who similarly was like, I'm here for these paintings. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. And that is where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you'll find the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on. The show notes for this episode includes the links to the original sources for everything we have talked about this time and next time is a very long list. Uh, You can also find a searchable archive at our website for every episode we have ever done. And if you click on live shows at the top of the page, all of our upcoming live shows and tour. So you can do all that at our website and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 